0: This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at Patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is The 40-Year War in Afghanistan by Tariq Ali. Rarely has there been such an enthusiastic display of international unity as that which greeted the invasion of Afghanistan in 2001. Compared to Iraq, Afghanistan became The Good War— But a stalemate ensued, and the Taliban waited out the NATO contingents. Today, with the collapse of the puppet regime in Kabul, what does the future hold for a traumatized Afghan people? Tariq Ali has been following the wars in Afghanistan for 40 years. The 40-year war in Afghanistan brings together the best of his writings and includes a new introduction. In this series of trenchant commentaries, he describes the tragedies inflicted on Afghanistan, as well as the semi-Talibanization and militarization of neighboring Pakistan. I also interviewed Tariq about Afghanistan on The Dig in October 2021, before this book was published, which you can find in our archives. The 40-Year War in Afghanistan by Tariq Ali, out now from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Argentina is the epicenter of an internationalist left-wing feminist movement that has over the past few years become a massive force across Latin America. It has demanded an end to violence against women, and demanded the legalization of abortion, and then also critically made demands for the radical transformation of the social and economic orders in their entirety. Most recently, the new Latin American feminist movement laid the groundwork for Chile's mass popular uprising, for the creation of a constituent assembly to rewrite the country's constitution, and for the election of Gabriel Boric as president. Today, I'm interviewing Veronica Gago, an Argentine feminist, political theorist, and organizer. We discuss Argentina's feminist movement, how the women's strike illuminates the ties that bind domestic labor and financial exploitation, and the popular economies and ideologies that have emerged and thrived amid the cracks and contradictions of neoliberal capitalism. That and a whole lot more. Over the past few months, a lot of new people have started listening to The Dig. At least that's what our download statistics would suggest. If you are new to The Dig... I encourage you to check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com for hundreds of interviews about politics, economics, and history everywhere. I also encourage you to take a quick moment to support this podcast at patreon.com slash thedig. Many podcasts raise money by paywalling half their episodes. We have a different model here at The Dig. We want everyone to be able to listen to every episode, regardless of your ability to pay. And we can afford to do that because those of you listeners who can afford to contribute do so. What's more, a contribution of any size at all, even a dollar a month, gets you access to our weekly email newsletter, which is quite good. Make a contribution of $10 or more, and we will send you a book or books or a dig mug or tote bag. Please contribute what you can now at patreon.com slash the dig. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. Okay, here's Veronica Gago, a feminist activist, researcher, and editor. She is part of the Ni Una Menos or not one less, collective, and the author of Feminist International, How to Change Everything, and Neoliberalism from Below, Popular Pragmatics in Baroque Economies. Veronica Gago, welcome to The Dig.
1: Thank you very much. It's my pleasure to be here.
0: Argentina was arguably the starting point for this new feminist movement that over the past half decade or so, has become an extraordinarily powerful political force across Latin America, especially in the Southern Cone, perhaps especially in Chile. How did that movement take shape in Argentina and then spread the way it has across the region?
1: Yes, it is difficult to think of what produces an event in the sense of a logic of causality. Nevertheless, it is I think it's interesting to analyze the lines and temporalities that converge there in Argentina, although it is not a linear explanation. It's the force of history itself. In my book, I propose a, a, a genealogy. It's an option between or among other possibilities, but I think it's a genealogy. And I would like to emphasize at least one of those lines to answer how it took shape from my point of view. You know, the dictatorship human rights movement with the protagonism of uh, Madres y Abuelas de Plaza de Mayo, mothers and grandmothers, uh, are a very important movement, a very strong genealogy to think in this sort of uh, new type of social protagonism that came from the margins of politics and at the same time, Reinvented politics, but also uh, queer activism and traditional feminist uh, meetings that uh, here in Argentina were developed for more than three decades. Uh, now it is uh, called the Encuentro Plurinacional de Mujeres Lesbianas Travestis y Trans, the plurinational meeting of women, Lesbian, trans, and travestis. And it is a sort of uh, meeting for feminist pedagogy that is uh, very important for different generations during three decades. I insist this is a very important space, it's also a nomad space, but it's because it it changed every year of uh, location. But also, I think that the unemployed movement in Argentina after the crisis in two thousand and one is also a very important line of struggles and experiences where uh, we can think how, for example, work is problematized. That has to do with this uh, capacity in Argentina of the feminist movement to become massive. I think that the, the question that we are all the time asking is how this massiveness is composed. So I think that Those are lines of experiences, accumulation of forms of mobilizations, repertories of ways of doing, but also forms of doing politics that starts from the margins, that reorganize the meaning of the political, and that problematize conflicts and start to narrate as political conflicts and not just individual or interpersonal or isolated conflicts. I think that this leap in the feminist movement, uh, it also has to do with a lot of political work. Different organizations and collectives became strategic in uh, the process of the feminist movement uh, and this becoming massive. I am referring, for example, to unions social movements, but also different collectives and territorial struggles, because they were the protagonists of different conflicts that became part of the feminist agenda. So feminism was no longer a specificity of certain traditional initiatives or certain academic discourse or certain institutional demands. It was rather the overflow of bodies, territories, and problematics related to work and its precarization but also extractivism, migrant and indigenous demands, and well, different ways of weaving all this uh, together. Those issues actually redefine the practice of how feminism understands violence. I think that these different kinds of conflicts produce a new comprehension of what we are talking when we talk about violence. So we started talking about stop killing us against feminicide. But after that, we, um, I say we in a very wider sense, uh, we start to to work uh, on that uh, political definition of what violence is and how different subjects of struggles are reading and are proposing different readings of what violence is nowadays. And I think that the inclusion of different political actors and different political conflicts within the feminist movement has been very important in building its size, its massiveness. And of course, there are very important and traditional feminist organizations, feminist trajectories, and there are, of course, historical feminist dyna- dynamics. But um, I think that we achieved to go beyond the sectorial definition of feminism and to start thinking of feminism as a political praxis. In very different spaces, for example, in unions, in political organizations, in social movements, in schools, in universities, in communitarian space. So I think that is interesting how those different spaces uh, began to ask what kind of feminism are we developing? So feminism is not just uh, <laughs> a pret-a-porter label, that you acquire. I think that uh, all these uh, different uh, political organizations start to think what type of feminism we are developing, we need, we want to build. And uh, I think it's very important. For example, in Latin America, you can find feminismo villero, feminismo indígena, feminismo afro, feminismo de las periferias, feminismo de los estudiantes. those different tags are not just adjectives. I think that are political compositions. In terms of this question of what does it mean feminism here and now? How can we build a feminist that is uh, embedded in our political organization? How those feminism practices are also redefining what are those organizations? I think that uh, Argentina uh, has this uh, experience in big mobilizations, this very strong uh, protagonism of unionism that is a central actor also in the feminist strike, and also this uh, experience with the 2001 crisis to uh, go very strong against the idea of the work Uh, And the wage work as the only possible horizon of dignified life. So I think that all those elements are part, are playing a role in this feminism that is, I think, a massive feminism that is a, a central feature of this moment of feminist movement. So we talk about feminist tide are different images of this massiveness, but it's certainly uh, one of the most interesting features to to analyze and to all the time ask how it is produced, because it is uh, a condition that it has to be produced each time. We have to organize the next mobilization. We have to organize.
0: You have to organize the next mobilization right, right, right now. <laughs> yes,
1: <laughs> yes. We are in a very, <laughs> in a very complex uh, conjuncture and situation after two years of pandemic, trying to organize the next um, feminist strike uh, in one month. And uh, we are doing a lot of meetings and well chats and trying to weave uh, together an statement, a, a political document, but also a way of reclaiming streets uh, when we are more tired, when we <laughs> have less money, when we have to reinvent in certain way uh, the form of the strike.
0: What accounts for the movement's regionalism and internationalism? And and why is the internationalism so important? Is it for the same reason that internationalism has always been important for the socialist and communist left? Or is something distinct happening with the feminist movement and its internationalism?
1: Yes, for me, it's the other key component of the massiveness. We were talking about how this massiveness is Uh, a sort of political composition. I think that we have to think in this political composition also in terms of internationalism, because both are related. And I think that this uh, idea of we must rid ourselves of neoliberalism, we must rid ourselves of financial capitalism, uh, it is a transnational perspective. So we are also reclaiming this international dimension because we cannot delegate this on capital. And I think the the cross-border politics enables us to think beyond our territories. For example, one year the movement is very strong in Argentina and in Italy. The next year it becomes strong in Spain. A year on, a movement arises in Mexico and now Chile is in the front line. So, we can also connect and feel that we are part of this movement. Uh, and the experience of being part of a movement that is not always within your country, and yet feel that you are in, I think is the very powerful experience. And uh, in other words, it has been important to, to rethink, as you said, uh, the idea of a new internationalism a concrete internationalism that is not an abstraction and rather something that we are part. I think that the the socialist and communist tradition is uh, very important and of course, is a sort of presence when we talk about internationalism. I think that uh, we are thinking in a sort of internationalism that is not built with a protagonism of political parties that is very different in terms of, of course, history and the present uh, moment, but also how can we rethink this relationship between concrete and abstract? How we can um, reframe our struggles, very embedded in our territories, and how these uh, very concrete struggles has, have sorry, the possibility to connect with funded territory. And I think that, for example, migration and the struggles related to migration, and for example, the domestic workers are producing a, a practical internationalism. And also when they try to organize in the feminist strike, but at the same time, it's not easy for them without papers or without legal status uh, in their countries to organize. I think this is a central issue for the feminist strike, but also how we uh, rethink in terms of anti colonial struggles and how the feminism uh, in terms of uh, international movement is rethinking and reconceptualizing, in some sense, uh, what we understand as an anti-colonial or decolonial uh, movement. I, I, I think that those are a very important debates that also has the scale of international movement. And also, they are very related of, uh, with sorry different uh, agendas Uh, about extractivism, about uh, migrant workers, and about, uh, of course, uh, new modes of imperialism. And I think that all those uh, kind of lines are uh, part of this uh, internationalism. And I think that we have very close uh, experience uh, sharing statements uh, sharing uh, vocabularies, uh, sharing images of different mobilizations in uh, very different parts of the world, but also like a political translation. For example, what happened with the Chilean performance la Tesis and how this performance, that is a very theoretical performance because they expose a political hypothesis of what violence is, how this Shant became a sort of international vocabulary to think about a common problem, and at the same time, how it was translated into very different uh, languages and territories. <laughs> I think that massiveness and internationalism are uh, two very important key of uh, the moment.
0: You write, quote, against the narrow model of who can strike, white male waged unionized workers we have expanded its political capacity languages and geographies why did the feminist movement take the form of the feminist strike and then to define some terms what is a strike and what makes the feminist strike a strike is it invoked as a metaphor or a redefinition or some of both or something else entirely
1: well in my book in particular, I use the, the feminist strike as a lens because I am completely fascinated with the political process of the feminist strike, but also because I saw here in Argentina, but also in this international landscape, how the notion of strike makes sense for a very different uh, situations of workers, uh, and, and especially Uh, workers related to social reproduction, but also uh, workers related to popular or informal economies, as we uh, know that are the majoritarian economies in in Latin America. So I think that the the feminist strike is a redefinition of a powerful form of, of struggle, but in a very new historical moment. And I like very much the displacement that we can uh, see when we talk about the feminist strike in relation to the spatialities of work. And also, uh, I think that the feminist uh, movement has a lot to do with uh, this idea of strike in order to think social reproduction but uh, in order to connect and make contact with different sectors, but also to uh, rethink uh, their role within the unions and how also um, we can uh, connect uh, different forms of struggles that are usually not recognised as labour struggles. So I think that the strike itself becomes a vector for transversality. That is what we are all the time trying to build. How this uh, feminist strike uh, goes beyond on a very specific tool and enables us to connect with all the people and all the subjects and all the conflicts that are usually uh, excluded for the historical tool uh, of the strike. So I think that the, also the feminist strike provides a class content to very different demands and expands the, the question about what does strike means in each situation. And I like very much this idea of a feminist strike as a sort of research question, as a sort of practical research question, because we started with the impossibility of a strike. We cannot strike in our everyday uh, life, in our uh, jobs without bosses, in our very precarious life. I think that the, the first Thing is, the impossibility. But uh, I think that we organize to redefine this impossibility into a new form of struggle and to reappropriate and recreate the strike in a new sense. And I think that I am also thrilled in terms of what the strike. Uh, means in very different countries, for example, and how different uh, sectors and how different experiences and collectives and trajectories of political organizing, how they have, yes, recreate the strike in, in very new ways. And also, I think that the other point that is important is that the notion and the political archive of the strike, connect us also with a very radical legacy. And I think that um, this is also another thing that for me is important, how massiveness of uh, feminism has to do with uh, a radical narrative because usually doing politics in terms of massiveness is related to moderating demands to suit the narratives in the softer language of mass media, for example. The feminist movement bets on the opposite, radicalizing the narratives to connect the housing demand with the refusal of gender mandates and external debt, for example. And arousing the desire to change everything. And I think that this sort of connection, this sort of mixing up everything, this was the, <laughs> the accusation that the media told us. You are mixing up everything. What has to do with a feminist side with the external debt and the demand for housing? This is not feminist uh, feminist movement. You just have to reclaim for uh, feminicide. And when we started to connect uh, in a very radical gesture, I think all these uh, forms of uh, violence and to explain in a very concrete way what precarization is in our lives, in our everyday uh, lives. I think that it's also a way to to think and to combine massiveness with radicalization in in a new way. And I also think that you start for a very concrete problem, for example, housing or, for example, household debt. And uh, with that problem, you can, in, in a very universal terms, we can say, uh, well, all the destructive and dispossessive uh, device of capitalism. But you can comprehend and uh, understand its functioning in a very uh, concrete uh, way. So I, I think it's very important in, in that sense. At the same time, I think that the the other uh, challenge of the feminist movement, its internationalism, has to do with a sort of responsibility to give rise to this transferer coordination and not only doing common diagnosis, so that is precarization, that is migrant work, that is domestic conditions of reproduction. It is not only the level of diagnosis, I think that we have a sort of responsibility to give rise to a coordination and to learn permanently how feminism is being translated on different conjunctures. For example, how the feminist movement is involved nowadays in the constituent process in Chile. How the feminist movement is preparing to defeat Bolsonaro. How the feminist movement is confronting the neoliberal reforms in Ecuador. How the feminist movement is challenging the justice system in Mexico. I think that this also commitment with uh, the details of the political process in which feminism nowadays is intervening and is also a political actor in different uprisings, in different protests, in different uh, political process. I think this is also very important and it has to do when we were talking before about how to go beyond a sectorial Uh, actor and how to go beyond a sort of ghetto agenda of gender vocabulary. I think that we go beyond when we connect all these different uh, demands and problematics, more than demands, it's problematics, (laughs) and when we are learning on the time how the feminist movement in each country and each conjuncture is producing a new way of reading congenital and how the feminist movement is participating in a very concrete disputes in terms of, uh, well, also justice system, but also economics, also politicals, also candidates, also elections, and so on.
0: You write, quote, It is important to avoid thinking about the notion of the strike as a floating signifier, as those who use the Argentine theorist Ernesto Laclau's theory refer to it, the sort of term that, because it is undefined, anything can fit into or be projected onto, a linguistic declination of logical and discursive connections. The strike is able to be transversal, is able to give collective voice to so many kinds of people, precisely because it is rooted in the shared materiality of our precarity. It is these shared conditions that give the strike its meaning, rather than the inverse. What sort of shared condition is is precarity, and how does it compare to the shared condition of the more classical proletariat? And how how does the strike power of the precarious compare to that? of the classical proletariat?
1: Yes, I think it's a very important question because first place, I think strike is not just a word. And we write it in a flyer or in a post, and in a website, and just the strike goes on. I think that the, the, the political problem is how we can build a strike In those conditions, it's not just a question of introducing or reintroducing the word strike in our political imaginaries or in our political discourses. The problem is what makes real today a strike. And I think that it is also very important in all those conflicts that we have been seeing during the pandemic, which is a time where the strike has become a very important element of the landscape in different places and in different uh, workplaces. And my commitment is to think, for example, the statement in Argentina, Trabajadoras somos todas, or Trabajadoras somos todas. All women, or all, all we are workers. It does not operate as a blanket that covers and. Homogenize an abstract class identity. Rather, it functions because it reveals the multiplicity of what labor means from the feminist point of view. And with all of these uh, divisions and hierarchies that precarization uh, produces. So I think the the notion of uh, this strike is not just uh, a discourse. enables us to a very concrete political work and to uh, map the different conditions of precarization. that I think is also a term that we can not use as a common term for everything. (laughs) All is (laughs) precarious and precarity is the new keyword for understanding everything, but I think that Yes, we can work politically with the idea of a common ground of precarization, And I think that in the pandemic times, this is very clear for everyone. But I think that connecting the possibility of the strike with precarity also is a way to research and to analyse in a very concrete way Uh, the crisis of the patriarchy of wage, to to quote Silvia Federici, but also to think in all the specialities of work that that are not recognized as specialities of work. So the feminist perspective about work is something that today enables us to recognize all the invisible work the non-paid work, but also the informal and popular economies, but also the building of popular infrastructure to sustain everyday life. We saw it during the pandemic. Without those popular infrastructures, communities of care and um, ways of managing public resources with self-management organizations, well, the pandemic was for sure worst than it was. So uh, I think that today the the notion of feminist strike related to precarization uh, is a way to see as a conflict, a lot of different situations that pretend to be normalized all the time. So I think also it's a, it's a lens against the normalization of precarization and also is a lens for the recognition of labor where labor is not recognized as such. And also is a lens to rethink the patriarchal and colonial hierarchies that organize the sexual international division of labour and to update those cartographies of the world economy from a feminist uh, perspective. And I quote Rosa Luxemburg uh, because I love how she studies a combination of elements to characterise the strike as a process and not as an isolated event. I like very much that idea. I took that idea as a guide, but also it is what we are seeing, how every year the feminist strike develops different strategies and also try to uh, rethink uh, work uh, related to different congenitors, but also it is uh, the commitment with this transnational dimension that we were talking about. But Rosa Luxemburg, she thinks of the strike as a living body and as an aquatic landscape. And those images seem very powerful to conceptualize today's rhythms of the feminist strike as a political process with different temporalities from within. Of course, we can or I can feel anxiety when the uh, political organization is uh, with other rhythm that those uh, that we experimented two or three years ago. But at the same time, the idea of we must think the feminist strike in these difficult conditions, I think it's a very important form of persisting in this way of organization. And uh, again, to think each strike as an opportunity to update our political thought, as Luxembourg says, to recognize the conditions of the workforce in each historical moment, and to update how extended is the violence of colonial capitalism. So I like very much to to follow her thought in, in, in that sense, because I feel it very useful.
0: You write that one way the feminist strike functions as a lens is is by allowing us to better understand the totality of the present order, specifically, quote, connecting domestic labor with financial exploitation. What What is that connection between domestic labor and financial exploitation? What role is it playing currently in Argentina and in the capitalist world system and how how does the feminist strike illuminate it?
1: Yeah, it is a sort of zone of connection between my personal <laughs> interest and uh, the political conjuncture here in Argentina. But I think that is not a problem only here. Well, I think that the, the link between work and debt uh, must be highlighted because Here we are uh, studying, but also confronting uh, household debt and analyzing how household debt operates as a mechanism that enforces precarization by forcing workers, and especially women, (laughs) lesbian, trans, and dareshis, to accept work that is increasingly poorly paid. As a result, so debt, becomes the internal motor that drives flexibility and it commands and organizes forms of precarious labor. At the same time, debt is a means of exploitation that manages to intensify and adapt to the progressively heterogeneous realities of labor. I was studying the process of popular indebtedness the last years, and uh, then especially, why are the women and the most indebtedness population? And um, I think that we have to understand finance beyond its technical complexity and its uh, expert language from a feminist point of view. And I think that the Nuna Menos collective, Colectivo Nuna Menos in Argentina did a great job in terms of feminist pedagogy to uh, think and statement to uh, combine the struggle against femicide and claim for the work we want alive, but also without debt. Our statement is ni una menos, vivas libres y desendeudadas nos queremos. Not one less. Alive, uh, with freedom and without that, we want ourselves. So, I think that the connection between those uh, terms is a very important. In first place, I, I think that produces a, a place of enunciation that is not victimhood, it's not just stop killing us. Then, dispute the idea of freedom. In what sense? <laughs> and and dispute with the libertarian (laughs) um, meanings and uh, apologies of freedom. And also the connection with the uh, economic autonomy. When we are saying we want ourselves without debt, we are connecting the effects of this external debt with the household debt. And we are addressing how the politics of austerity, related to external debt are translated into household debt. So you have to assume that household debt in your everyday economy to confront the austerity measures of the government that is, in turn, uh, obliged to those politics by the IMF. So I think that drawing this circle, drawing this connection drawing the entire flux of uh, debt from household to sovereign debt and to household, from household to global finance. It is a very important uh, work in terms of uh, feminist uh, pedagogy. And again, I, I think that I, I, I work on the concept of financial extractivism to connect also how finance and especially debt has to do with uh, extractivism and how can we think in the logic of extraction from the point of view of finance and also it is a very important point if we think why today the poorest household are the more indebted why which is The function of the finance extracting value of those very poor households. And how the more indebtedness are women. So I think that we have to analyze debt uh, in relation to work, in relation to land, in relation to extractivism, and also try to think how this household debt, this uh, everyday life command by household debt, has to do also with a type of management, of political management of the crisis. You are all the time doing a lot of things, a lot of work to pay debt. And this overexploited workday is command by debt. And also in Argentina, in Latin America, this uh, indebtedness, Uh, especially in popular sectors, also has to do with the blossom of illegal economies, because they are the most clever uh, to uh, manage all these uh, financial fluxes from below, but also financial fluxes that has to do with uh, financial instructivism in a very high level. So. I think that we must build those maps in terms of uh, popular comprehension and from a feminist point of view because it organizes our everyday life and we go to an assembly and a camera said, I, I have to go because I have a new job because I, I am indebted with the financial institution, but also with my credit card, but also with uh, my former husband. So you can see how household debt is reorganizing the the political sphere, but also the, the ways of reorganizing also uh, work and uh, the specialities of, of work, but also I insist uh, the violence of illegal economies as a, um, as a sort of solution when you are very indebted. The, well, the illegal fluxes are your saviors. Uh,
0: it seems similar to how primitive accumulation functions by separating workers from the means of subsistence and forcing them to work for a wage in order to survive but it's like a layered on top of that, an intensification.
1: Exactly, exactly. And and another level, because (laughs) it's uh, more and more sophisticated in terms of this financial destructivism. But at the same time, uh, it connects also lands and uh, natural resources with these devices of debt, but also with the uh, real estate speculation that has to do with the uh, increasement of of housing debt in different neighborhoods. So you can uh, do the entire map and I I like very much this idea of terrain of primitive or original accumulation um, as a lot of well, different uh, theories and uh, political debates are trying to argue uh, for the current phase of dispossessive uh, capitalism but I, I think that from the point fo- from the point of view of a feminist perspective and uh, f- from the problematics that arise when we are trying to organize those territories of very precarious lives and very precarious jobs and uh, those uh, very difficult conditions for social reproduction. Well, we confront also the the problematic of where is the time for political organization? That is instructing us time for political organization. And we see it, it is not an abstract, hypothesis we see the difficulties to maintain to sustain different spaces and political spaces when you are all the time demand uh, to organize a soup kitchen at your neighborhood because you need to accept another work or another job or when you need to uh, well work at your home also before Uh, home office, uh, trying to complete your income.
0: In regard to reproductive labor, you write that the feminist strike is, quote, no longer considering these forms of labor as supplementary or subsidiary to wage labor, but showing how they are fundamental to current forms of exploitation and value extraction, and also constitutive of the precarious and restricted condition of collective sustenance. There's... This theoretical difference, which might seem a little bit niche, but I think is pretty interesting between autonomous feminists and Marxist social reproduction theorists like Paula Varela and also Tithi Bhattacharya, who I interviewed previously on the podcast, who who argue that reproductive labor outside of the wage relationship does not produce value in the Marxist sense. Because as Varela writes, quote, social reproductive labor is not value production precisely because it is not commensurable. It cannot be abstract labor. What do you make of the social reproduction theorist's argument that we must recognize the distinction between productive and reproductive labor, not because either is less important, but precisely to understand the the contradiction between the two under capitalism?
1: Well, I think that the contradiction is a very important political point. But here... I follow in theoretical terms uh, the the work of Silvia Federici and her point of view, because I think that uh, Federici addressed the importance of the existence of big areas of exploitation not recognized. And I think that Uh, from Latin America, this is a very concrete and intuitive, I I can say, intuitive, uh, it's a a political intuition, that, which is recognized here as work. It is a very small part of the uh, working class people. So I I think that when the feminists in the 70s discussed that unpaid labor is not only from the waged workday, and they try to to analyze and to visibilize other unpaid and unfree forms of work, Uh, put in the center this uh, notion of measure, uh, that is what capital needs to be not considered as value. So I think that the problem of measure is not the same that saying that is not producing value. I think there are different problematics. And of course, I I, I really enjoy different um, discussions, especially from a feminist uh, theoretical perspective like Cristina Morini, when she talks about the problem of going beyond measure and how the feminist uh, struggles put in crisis, the idea of measure in terms of wage measure, in terms of the duration of the working day. So I, I think that all those uh, discussions has a lot to do with realities of third world, for um, just to use a, a, an old way of saying it, uh, where the, an unpaid and an unfree labor is almost the majority. So I am interested, especially in, in our region, where non-formal work is majoritarian, to spotlight the work that is beyond wages. In the first place, Those who produce the working class must be themselves productive of value. This is the Silvia Federici uh, argument, and I agree with that. But also in what I try to think as domestic territories, it is not just the household. Those communitarian territories, those enlarged or expanded territories of domestic reproduction, when we f- where we find a huge amount of communitarian labor, territorial production of popular infrastructures, a lot of popular economies. Not considering those activities as value producer is a political decision, I think, but also a form of considering wageless lives as not productive. So beyond the, the technical discussion within Marxism, I think that is uh, very important to recognize why all those kind of labor are not recognized and how the idea of uh, value uh, is the idea of forms of exploitation. So we cannot produce value as a form of exploitation that is recognized by wages. We were talking before about how debt exploits social reproduction, for example. And I think that uh, the financial devices are very smart and very speedy to extract value and to exploit and to recognize in those terrains of social reproduction that they are terrains of Uh, value production. So I I think that reducing the idea of value to uh, those who uh, receive a wage or to reduce the idea of value as a measure in terms of uh, wage and the duration of the working day is a very restricted idea. And um, in terms of our realities in terms of what the feminist strike uh, also has showed and what are the uh, current dynamics of precarization and how the uh, i insist the financial devices take advantage and exploits and extract value uh, from those uh, social reproduction terrains
0: I I think the technical aspects of the debate between social reproduction theorists and autonomous aside, your point about the regional context for the resonance in Latin America is really important. Um, Silvia Federici is just enormously popular in Latin America, has clearly struck a chord. Also a past guest on this podcast.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I think that um, while the translation of her classical Caliban and the Witch is sort of a common sense nowadays for the feminist movement. You can see all the time different uh, groups of reading her book, but also how the statement about uh, no es amor, es trabajo, no pago. It is not love, it's unpaid work. is like a graffiti in the unions or in different assemblies. I think that her book uh, narrates these scenes of primitive or original accumulation that we were talking before that resonates and makes sense with uh, the current conditions for a lot of different women, lesbian, trans, and travestis and migrant workers and domestic workers. So I I think the, the resonances of her uh, theoretical approach, and uh, the current conditions of violence, and uh, the new way of dispossession and extractivism against certain territories, but also the driving force of finance as financial extractivism uh, against certain bodies and certain territories, Uh, I think that are very powerful experiences to connect this uh, kind of analysis and political vocabulary with everyday life.
0: I'm Naomi Klein. You're listening to The Dig as well you should be, and you can support them on patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at Patreon.com and by Haymarket Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Coup, a story of violence and resistance in Bolivia by Linda Farthing and Thomas Becker. In three dramatic weeks in October and November 2019, the 14 years of progressive change that Evo Morales' Pink Tide government had worked to implement in Bolivia and beyond came to a screeching halt. Coup offers an indispensable account of the conditions that led to the 2019 coup in Bolivia and details its repressive aftermath, narrating a year of upheaval in Bolivia and providing a critical analysis of the MAS government that preceded it, as well as the MAS return to power in 2020. As Luisa Inacio Lula da Silva puts it, this book, makes a vital contribution to the struggles of the peoples of the Americas to defend themselves against the coup d'etats that anti-democratic elites of the hemisphere have unleashed again, albeit cloaked in new garments. Find coup at haymarketbooks.org. Coup, a story of violence and resistance in Bolivia, by Linda Farthing and Thomas Becker. Out now from Haymarket Books. Neoliberalism might have killed the Fordist family wage, but it did not substitute something more liberatory in its place. You write that we're experiencing, quote, the crisis of the patriarchy of the wage. This does not mean the end of patriarchy, of course, but the decomposition of a specific way of structuring the patriarchy. The intensification of sexist violence demonstrates that excess of violence that is no longer contained by the wage form. So alongside Melinda Cooper, you're arguing that neoliberalism is fundamentally always also socially reactionary, in part because it forces women to do more reproductive labor. But you argue that's something much that includes a lot of other things as well. What function does social reaction in general and anti-feminism in particular serve for neoliberalism? Yes,
1: I think that we are here in different places discussing Uh, different forms of managing and negotiating the decline of male breadwinner. And I think that from the point of view of my work, I I am very interested in this zone of connection between feminist economics and popular economics. And how this um, terrains different forms of uh, labour, but also different forms of self-management related to cooperatives and social subsidies, but also uh, collective uh, arrangement to produce social reproduction are in uh, the center of the also the, the political organization. So I think that in Argentina the political genealogy, for example, of the valorization of reproductive labor, particularly in the popular economies uh, whose leadership also is clearly feminized and uh, clearly migrant, is a key point raised today by feminist economists. I think that, um, like many other countries in the region, the debate about remuneration of reproductive and more generally informalized labor overlaps here with the history of social subsidies public policies, and which are the different strategies to confront this decline of male breadwinner and at the same time, the neoliberal management of social policies. So we are in the midst of these different dynamics and which are the workforce landscape after the neoliberal structural reforms in Latin America. Well, we can see a very complex landscape of these non-wage or wageless lives of popular infrastructures, of political organization, of social subsidies, of illegal economies, all combined producing different assemblage, different arrangement to reproduce life. So I think that in the middle, or in the midst of this complex situation, we are witnessing this uh, decline of the, the figure of male breadwinner, and also there the legal economies has a very important role to offer a new form of authority, a new form of income, and also to replace this idea of breadwinner in other terms. So it is, I think, a very complex complex web of violence that is structuring this landscape of real life in the majoritarian work phase, workforce, sorry, uh, landscape in Latin America and in Argentina in particular. So I think that we need uh, to think how the conservative uh, forces or reactionary forces intervenes in that <laughs> complex landscape, offering, for example, uh, new forms of uh, recognition for these declined male breadwinners, but also offering forms of security in the midst of uh, very precarious neighbourhoods. But also um, talking about freedom when you are more and more experimenting the interdependence of your daily life. So I think that the, the important point with the feminist discussion is how the the feminist movement and feminist debates and feminist imaginaries and feminist forms of doing politics is challenging. Uh, An interpretation of the crisis, an interpretation of those uh, forms of interdependence and interpretation of which are the reasons of violence, and which are the uh, horizons of possibilities to guarantee the social reproduction. And um, I think it's very, very complex because the destabilization of patriarchal and racist authorities that the feminist movement deployed in terms of mobilization, but also in terms of everyday politics, in terms of uh, everyday effective uh, politics too, threatens uh, these sort of devices of security, those devices of capital accumulation. So I insist that when we discuss in Latin America the neoconservative turn or the new reactionary forces, we um, have to give credit to feminism and movement of sexual dissonance um, in these migrant slum union student, indigenous, popular compositions. And as we were talking before, in their massive radical and transnational character, As key dynamics of destabilizing the sexual gender based order and therefore the neoliberal political order, because which those orders are materializing the dispute over the directions of the crisis. So, I think that all the time we are um, discussing uh, neoliberalism and conservatism and how they share strategic objectives in terms of normalizing and managing the crisis uh, of the relation of obedience. And in that sense, I I like very much the the definition of different cameras that talk about feminism as a politics of everyday disobedience and how these forms of uh, politics defies hegemonic notions of security and hegemonic notions of management of the crisis.
0: Anti-feminism has really become core to the new Latin American right wing, specifically the demonization of what they call the ideology of gender. And I think I first heard that phrase in Spanish. For the first time, like ideology I don't think I heard it. I think I heard it. that was the first, not in not not in English. And the Latin American right is particularly fixated on Judith Butler to an extent that I think would really surprise most people on the American left, on the U.S. left. What does the ideology of gender, and and Judith Butler mean for the Latin American right, and why has that all become so central to their reaction against? social movements, and the pink tide left?
1: Well, I think that uh, Judith Butler's work is like an icon here, and it's also very popular, and it's not uh, limited to academics discussion. So it is a political vocabulary. And um, maybe you can discuss about Butler without reading her books, for example, because gender travel and different concepts uh, are all the time in the midst of the different discussions, but also uh, I think that her work is completely uh, incorporated as a political reference. And the reactionary forces understand that very well, because I think that, uh, well, for example, the discussion about sexual education at schools. This is where, uh, this is the main place where the Ideología de Género started as a debate. No? Different organizations, NGOs, um, religious uh, organizations, um, refusing sexual educations at schools. And they say, for example, well. Uh, they are provoking homosexuality. They are teaching about um, uh, Judith butler uh, and so on for kids at school uh, and the thing that we were talking before how feminist movement is challenging two main issues security and economy. I think that the anti racist struggles that has a lot to do with this trans feminist movement that are imagining or debating new coordinates of what we understand as freedom, but also as economic autonomy and what we want to learn at school and why abortion rights is a main issue for our political agenda. I think that those different Sense also has to do with um, proposing freedom not as an individual aspect, not as a sort of isolated uh, property of oneself. Uh, I think that the idea of freedom related to collective fabric, for example, and to uh, different political organizations that are organizing collective protection, different forms of self-defense. I think that all these political experiments are experienced by the neoconservative and the reactionaries as direct challenges to the notion of security, to the notion of economy, and to the notion of individual property. So, I I think that in Latin America, the, the political protagonism of a feminist movement that is trans-feminism, trans-feminism, it is analyzed by the reactionary force as a destabilizing movement And as I insist, a very political movement, not just an identity politics, not just academic debate, not just ghetto vocabulary. I I think that this massiveness with this radicality and these forms of the movement of being embedded in different conflicts and different struggles and disputing the new generation's sensibility uh, is something that is not tolerable, that is intolerable for the reactionary forces. And well, when Judith Butler was in Argentina always was very amazing. A lot of people well wanting to see her activities and to discuss with her and to well, it's a very popular figure here, but also in Brazil, you know. Well, I I, I wrote a chapter uh, in in my book trying to analyze where the gender ideology was uh, founded and which are the principles, in terms of doctrine, political doctrine, that are at the basis, and well. I I do some research work related especially to some Argentinian names uh, that are at the basis of that argument. But it's a, a regional campaign.
0: You write, quote, Since the 1970s, after the defeat of the revolutionary movements, Latin America has served as a site of experimentation for neoliberal reforms propelled from above by international financial institutions, corporations, and governments. But you argue that neoliberalism comes not only from above, but also from below. And you draw on Foucault's concept of governmentality, arguing that neoliberalism is also, quote, a set of skills, technologies, and practices, deploying a new type of rationality that cannot be thought of only from above. So you argue that after neoliberalism lost its political legitimacy, during, I guess, like the first decade of this century in Latin America, that it still remained rooted, quote, in popular subjectivities. What is this popular subjectivity of neoliberalism from below, and how does it relate to that neoliberalism that was imposed from above, the neoliberalism that we we know all about?
1: Well, the, the research that I understood in my book, Neoliberalism from Below, intended to open up a debate on neoliberalism uh, at the exact moment where here in our region, and in Argentina in particular, the prevailing argument was that neoliberalism belonged to the past, strictly associated to the neoliberal reforms in the 90s. So the initial objective of my research was to discuss the very notion of neoliberalism and the way that we can do some political and also historical debate in in our region to deepen the theoretical approach, but also to to map out the genealogy of struggles and with the objective of uh, confronting the idea that neoliberalism is synonymous with the market, and the opposite is the intervention of the state. So it seemed clear to me, it was based on concrete research that I understood over like five years, that this formula state versus market was a way of, simplified way of think about the role of the state in neoliberalism, but at the same time, a very simplified way of thinking uh, market and to uh, think about the structural reforms that uh, were uh, effectively uh, happened in the 90s. So I, I like uh, very much uh, the idea of discuss these things in terms of the popular economies where I situated uh, my work and um, that I want to discuss how these forms of neo- neoliberalism was not only formulas declared from above but also forms of um, resolving everyday life and uh, also it manages to redefine the idea of entrepreneurialism, but also ways of doing politics in terrains or neighborhoods completely dispossessed of public services, and uh, also related to the migrant workforce that is all the time compelled to uh, invent and to reorganize uh, its form of uh, producing and uh, conquering different uh, rights in a, in a new in a new way so um, the the formula neoliberalism from from below wants to emphasize this pluralization of logics uh, in terms of popular subjectivities but also um I want to emphasize the ambivalent and simultaneously political uh, ways of confronting the hegemony of neoliberalism, and at the same time, not having an alternative ways of doing things. I want to to, to think how the popular sectors, especially uh, the popular economies, uh, antagonizes with the neoliberal agenda, but at the same time, they were obliged to assume certain neoliberal conditions and ways of doing things. I want to emphasize how the uh, neoliberalism Uh, cannot be reduced to um, structural reforms. That is, of course, a very important and key uh, aspect of the Latin American landscape. But also how neoliberalism is a way of doing things for the popular sectors because neoliberalism interpolates the more uh, dispossessed people in terms of entrepreneurialism but also in terms of capacity of uh, doing and in terms of also self-management. So neoliberalism disputes the very terms of political organization, autonomy, self-management, capacity of uh, improving your life, but also it is uh, a way of challenging and at the same time assuming the neoliberal conditions. So I was um, very involved in different uh, networks in popular neighborhoods, but also in popular markets to think about migrant economies. And I saw how this idea of neoliberalism as something completely Of the past as uh, something like an external force has nothing to do with the everyday economies of the poorest. So I I was very interested also in um, trying to think about the forms of inclusions, for example, for the popular sectors that uh, are also embedded in exploding this idea of entrepreneurialism. And in that moment, I started to to think about finances from below also, how this indebtedness uh, has to do with social subsidies, but also with uh, autonomous ways of finding financial support for different autonomous entrepreneurialism. And I think it is a very important discussion until nowadays to think what happened after those moments of financial inclusion or what I call in that moment inclusion by consumerism and different forms of conquering rights very associated with a moment of economic growth. Uh, what happened with all that scenario with the defeat of the progressive and popular governments some years ago. So I think that the, the discussion of what are we describing as neoliberal politics is very important in terms of thinking subjectivity, of course, and it's a lot of work about that in all over the world. But uh, I think that in Latin America, that debate has to do with the idea of the popular economies as a sort of machinery that is uh, all the time in the midst with these neoliberal conditions, forms of political activism against neoliberalism, and at the same time, forms of assuming the uh, neoliberal rationality
0: you write that this that neoliberalism from below is in part quote the strategic rationality that the popular classes vital perseverance brings into play but it also quote mixes forms of servitude and conflict is the entrepreneurial subjectivity crafted by neoliberalism that is neoliberalism from below is it a reflection of hegemonic neoliberal ideology? Is it a dissident departure from it? Is it a mixture of both? Is it a contradictory state? Well,
1: I think it is an attempt to think uh, neoliberalism also as a battleground. It's not a sort of complete ideology. It's not just an autonomous trend of capital that develops with its own rationality. And I think that it's also a form to think in a different way, the violence of neoliberalism uh, against the poorest sectors of our countries. So I, I think that neoliberalism from below and the different images and conceptualizations that I, have, I develop in, in, in my book and has to do with this idea of challenge the notion of neoliberalism as a sort of total concept or just an ideology that you can read and then see how it is applied. And it is also uh, a point of view to uh, address also what the popular sectors or the more dispossessed sectors confront with neoliberalism, because I I think that the the worst thing of neoliberalism is the idea that there is no more any kind of antagonism, that neoliberalism is a sort of monster that uh, has the capacity to absorb any kind of struggle, any kind of inflection, any kind of confrontation. So I think it's a, a very ambiguous uh, argument, but at the same time, I want to uh, reflect how um, those uh, popular economies are disputing what neoliberalism is and uh, how they do not fit completely in the idea of neoliberal entrep- entrepreneurialism. I, I think that The idea of uh, individual, uh, rational, neoliberal uh, subject is not what is working on those popular economies. And at the same time, you cannot argue that they are developing alternative economies. So in this zone of promiscuity, in this zone of ambiguity, I do not want to Think that there is no way of antagonism. Although this kind of antagonism is not a, a classical antagonism, it's not an evident antagonism, but at the same time, it is part of very concrete struggles. For example, demanding in slums housing or demanding public services or reorganizing the workforce, especially migrant workforce in terms of new kinds of unionism. So I, I want to, to investigate uh, and to open up this concept, big concept of neoliberalism, beyond the idea of uh, doctrine or ideological tradition, and uh, to think uh, also what is happening in the real life with those who are the supposed victims of neoliberalism. What are they doing with these uh, conditions of disposition?
0: You write that the Latin American left that arrived with the pink tide marks, quote, the emergence of a populism that is seeking to become the reigning ideology in accordance with a return of the state, Attempting to assert itself as synonymous with the end of neoliberalism in the region. You argue instead that, quote, neoliberalism and neo developmentalism are combined to give a particular character to state intervention, as well as to the very concepts of development and social inclusion. How does your analysis depart from those that are more sympathetic to pink tide governments? In what sense have they not only failed to put an end to neoliberalism, but also facilitated? the extension of neoliberalism in a new form?
1: Well, it's it's a very complicated <laughs> discussion when we uh, see it from uh, our present. Because uh, maybe some analysis saying that we are witnessing a second wave of the pink tide, maybe in the next years, or maybe with the perspective in Chile, and maybe with the next elections in Colombia, in Brazil, but also with the defeat of Macri in Argentina. Uh, so Honduras. Honduras, exactamente. Um, Mexico. So all these different levels, rhythms, and um, maps of progressive uh, first wave, second wave, I think all the time put in the discussion about what kind of reformism uh, is possible and in which terms this reformism is enabled by social movement, by popular at rap- prices, and at the same time how this um, reformism also is conditioned by neo structivist policies. So I think that those three angles of the problem are entangled in the question of uh, what is uh, progressive or popular government nowadays. I think that the very interesting thing in Latin America is that it is not a pacified region. And the neoliberal and conservative uh, attempts to found a new order are all the time failing. And different uh, mobilizations, uprisings, uh, different uh, results in elections are all the time complicating this idea of a complete victory of the right-wing governments. And I think in, in that term, Latin America is a, a very dynamic region uh, in that moment. And we are uh, all the time doing balances about what was the main uh, debate or the main uh, objective of the progressive governments like five years ago? What happened or what was the failed to, to give rise to right-wing governments after them? And which are the scenarios nowadays after right-wing <laughs> governments, for example, Uh, which are the conditions in Argentina after four years of Macri government, which will be the conditions after Bolsonaro's government, uh, and so on. We are all the time, I think, trying to uh, analyze what type of reformism is possible in taking into account the uh, role of Latin America in the world market and how this is completely marked by uh, neostructivism and uh, how these forms of also disputing public policies, disputing against austerity measures and uh, confronting external debt, are part of the political programmes of the, the governments, the popular governments, which depends on the strength of the popular movement and I think in some moments the, the governments forget that <laughs> they depends on, on those uh, political and social movements to open up some possibilities to open up some horizons of sovereignty in some term.
0: Well, Veronica Gago, thank you very much.
1: Thank you very much. I hope to continue our conversation. <laughs>
0: Veronica Gago is a feminist activist, researcher, and editor. She is part of the Ni Una Menos Collective, not one less, and the author of Feminist International, How to Change Everything, and Neoliberalism from Below, Popular Pragmatics and Baroque Economies. As Marx once said, after noting that every social process of production is at the same time a process of reproduction. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We're posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis and recorded at WBRU in Providence. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinators are Tamoose Frankel and Gemma Sack. Our senior advisor is Fia Rio Francos. Check out our vast archives at TheDigRadio.com. Follow us on Twitter at TheDigRadio. Same on Facebook. And please do find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe to this podcast. If it's on iTunes, please also take a quick moment to rate and review The Dig. Those reviews, as long as they're good, help introduce us to new listeners. But what really and truly does that is you telling friends about the podcast. Please make propaganda for us. And please do find us on Patreon.com and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks a month is huge.